Coming up next. Have you ever heard about volunteers in medicine? No? Well, you oughta. These are often people who are retired, doctors, nurses, dentists, others, and they treat those people who really need help and who can't afford it. We'll be talking to Ilana Steinhauer. She is the executive director. She's a nurse practitioner, and she knows a lot. So be with us next. Hi, this is Alan Chartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Elana Steinhauer, the Executive Director of the Volunteers in Medicine Berkshires. Volunteers in Medicine Berkshires negotiates world-class medical care at no cost. VIM, as it's known, treats patients with chronic illnesses as well as those in need of acute, life-saving procedures, including transportation to leading hospitals. VIM offers comprehensive care and creative programs, including shared medical appointments, non-opioid pain management, group exercise, and community outreach. VIM also supports the business community by keeping farm workers, landscapers, restaurant workers, and others healthy and on the job. VIM is funded by foundations and businesses that provide 100% of its operating funds to the tune of over $1 million. We'll talk with Ilana Steinhauer about all of this and much more. But first, welcome, Ilana Steinhauer. Thank you, Alan, and thank you for having me. Well, this is a very important thing. I, I want to get my conflict of interest out of the way very quickly. We send you money because we think that this is a magnificent organization. It's not that much, but if everybody did a little, as we often say here at WAMC, it would be great. It is a terrific service that you provide. So tell us, what's your job there? And thank you for your support. Um, I am the executive director at Volunteers in Medicine, but I also hold the unique role because I'm a nurse practitioner. And so I also help, I also see patients directly and oversee all of the medical programming. You were raised where? I always like to ask that question to begin with. Yeah, so I was raised in Westchester. I was raised in Croton-on-Hudson. And I grew up coming to the Berkshires. My mom actually ran a kitchen at Eisner Camp, which is in Great Barrington, since I was six months old. So I grew up coming to the Berkshires every summer, and um, when I graduated college in 2005, I didn't know what to do, and I had gotten a job at Guido's, and I walked across the street, and I saw this sign, Volunteers of Medicine, what's that? And I walked in, and I actually became their very first intern in 2005, and That's... it was here that I was inspired to become a nurse practitioner and started my career in Boston and then moved back here in 2014. There are so many questions to ask, but where did it all get started here in the Berkshires and how? Yeah. So Volunteers in Medicine Berkshires um, was started with an idea in 2003. There was a group of um, people from the Berkshires who were actually in a course together at Berkshire Taconic. And um, after the course was over, one of the um, participants started to ask around if people were interested and interested in looking at the healthcare in the Berkshires and identifying if there was a need. Um, and so they, they um, got Harvard School of Public Health involved. They did a community needs assessment. And there was a big meeting at Berkshire South and where they presented the data, and they saw that there was, so it was about 2004 at this point, that there was a large need for people for medical care and dental care because there was still a high uninsured rate in the Berkshires. So who qualifies? I mean, who can come to them? 
Yeah. So anybody who is uninsured or underinsured who fits within our income guidelines, and our income guidelines are anyone who makes less than 300% the federal poverty guidelines. So, you know, a single person, that's about $35,000. And so we have people who have no medical insurance, and then we also have people who have medical insurance but do not have dental insurance. Now, the crucial question, of course, is who provides the services? Um, You know, we have things like malpractice insurance that doctors worry about. How do you get around all of that? Yeah. So as you can tell, volunteers in medicine, the primary primary providers of care are volunteers. So we have about 160 volunteers and a full-time staff of about 10. And so we have, of those 160 volunteers, 60 of those are in our clinical team. So doctors, nurses, behavioral health therapists, acupuncturists, optometrists, dentists, hygienists, you know, all of the medical, all of the direct care services plus front desk, they're all volunteers. Because we are a free healthcare facility, we actually qualify for free malpractice through the Federal Tort Act, which is amazing. So all of our providers are given free malpractice insurance if they provide time here. I suppose this is a good follow-up question, which I should probably not ask, but I will. Have you ever been sued? We've never been sued, and if you actually talk to the um, the federal tort for free clinics in all of the years that they've been doing this, they've only received one um, one lawsuit, really, that went through. So this is so interesting. Volunteers in Medicine Berkshires, does this mean there's an overgroup called Volunteers in Medicine America? Yes, yeah, so there's an organization called Volunteers in Medicine America, like you said, and their primary goal has always been to help new clinics um, begin, so giving the support to um, clinics that want to get started. They have shifted their mission over the past few years to try and bring the other vo- all of the volunteers in medicine clinics together and to help affiliate and to help with problem solving or grant funding. Um, so there's about 88 volunteers in medicines across the United States. We're not we're not connected except that we all agree to provide free health care and primarily use volunteers. So what is the relationship between you guys and, for example, our wonderful Fairview Hospital, which I love so much, you know, up here? Now, obviously, if you're not insured, there's the Hill Burton Act says on the wall, right, that you should be treated. How does that relationship work? Sure. So we actually have a very, very close relationship with all of the healthcare um, facilities in the Berkshires. So from CHP to Fairview to the private offices. CHP is Children's Health. What used to be the Children's Was Health. Children's, health yep, program. and now Community Health Program. Health program. Right. And also, we also work. You know, because we see people in the Berkshire region, we also work with you know, health centers that go, you know, all the way to Amenia and into um, other parts of New York and Connecticut. Our role is really to fill a need that others, um, that the, if, we, if it is not filled, the burden will go on to the rest of the healthcare system. So if you think about Fairview Hospital, for instance, Fairview Hospital can take, will take care of anybody. You can walk into that emergency room, they will not deny you services. That doesn't mean that you will not get billed. And so our role working with all of these other healthcare providers is to fill that need to, one, create a healthier community, to decrease the cost burden on those other agencies, and also to identify people that should be insured, get them insured, and get them back into um, 
their normal primary care or dental offices, whatever they need. Now, my understanding is that many of the volunteers, the 60 or so professionals that volunteer are retired doctors, nurses, or other healthcare professionals. Is that right? Yeah, you know, most are, I'd say the majority are retired. We do have quite a few who are still active. We have some providers that come from, for instance, we have some ER providers that volunteer here. We have dentists that are still active in the community, acupuncturists, some behavioral health, but the majority are retired. And the majority are, you know, traditionally the the retired the retired providers that we had were people who were moving into our community. What we're finding now, though, is that as we know, more and more of our healthcare professionals within Berkshire County are starting to retire, and we are starting to see them start to volunteer at Volunteers in Medicine as well. So my question to you is quality control. I mean, in other words, how do you know that the people who are volunteering are worthy, let's put it that way, or know enough to do what they're doing? Yeah, so we credential our providers just like any other office would credential their providers. So when you have malpractice, especially through federal tort, there's very specific guidelines that you have to follow. And one of the main things that we have in place, which is common, is a quality assurance committee. And this quality assurance committee is responsible for setting guidelines, setting credentialing, checking people's references, making sure that if something does go wrong, that we're investigating and that we're um, identifying what was the system cause of an issue and making sure that our patients are able to receive high, high, high quality care. Have you ever said no to anybody? Yes. <laughs> to be clear, you know, especially in some of our programs and especially with dental. So we do take care of people who don't have insurance. And so there are people who come in here who, you know, have have coverage that they're not happy with or they can't get a procedure done that they really want to get done and people will come in. We are, you know, when especially in when we're seeing an increase in need, we work really, really hard to help them navigate the systems that are in place. So we will help them call their provider and we'll help them navigate that. But yes, we do we do occasionally turn people away. Actually, it's a great answer, but it wasn't my question. (laughs) (laughs) But my question was, have you ever said no to a provider, somebody who volunteers to do that? And you say, well, maybe this just isn't for us. Sure. I mean, we do have things that we, the provider has to be able to do. One of the, one of the requirements is that we are on a, on an electronic medical record. And so the provider does need to be able to navigate a computer, navigate the records, Um, You know, because our providers are older, we're also very aware of, you know, where they are in terms of their capacity to still see patients and their skill level. But our credentialing process usually is able to, we're able to identify that before we go through the entire process because we'll have them in, we'll observe, we'll work with them, they'll observe the process, and we can tell pretty early on if it's not going to be a good fit. The other thing is just if they're if their way of caring is just not going to line up with the way with the with the kind of model we've set up which is really a patient centered care model for example so we we believe that everyone who comes in here is an individual and we don't have the burden of the insurance companies we take that responsibility and we go with you know that's a huge weight off of our providers they don't need to have an appointment in 8 minutes and then move on we can have a patient come in and they can spend 30 minutes with the provider, 45 minutes with the provider on their first visit or their second visit or their third. 
And then once they're done with the provider, we don't let them go. They then sit with the nurse case manager. We go through the plan. We make sure that everything else is set up. Do they have dental? Do they have optometry? Do they have housing? Do they have heating? What are the barriers that are going to prevent them from really truly living what we consider a healthy life and thriving in the Berkshires? And so when we have a provider or someone who comes in who that just isn't the way they're used to practicing or they're not interested in practicing that way, it's pretty clear early on that they're not going to be a good fit for us. We're talking to Alana Steinhauer, the executive director of Volunteers in Medicine Berkshires. Okay, so Ilana, I guess I want to talk to you a little bit about what your facility looks like. Now, I know it's right next to one of my favorite restaurants, which I get my, you know, pastrami sandwiches, which may not be that good for my heart, but I, it's right next to Volunteers in Medicine. How much room do you have? Yeah, so if you come to the bagel store, you've seen our sign, and I think a lot of people just think we're an office building or we're an organization that isn't, you know, maybe we operate somewhere else. But when you walk in, you know, the first thing you'll notice is that we have a full-on healthcare center here. So you walk into a large open-air waiting room with a big front desk. Now we have some glass screens to protect people from COVID, but you walk in, we have two full medical exam rooms. We have two full dental operatories. We have a full optometry suite. We have two large behavioral health rooms. We have a suite for what we call our integrative medicine suite, where we have acupuncture and massage. We have a conference room for education with our patients or meetings. You walk in, it's a professional feel. It's warm. It's friendly. Um, people think, you know, free clinic, it's going to feel like what they imagine, you know, New York City clinics used to look like or still maybe some look like, but it feels like any other private office or any other medical facility you would walk into in the Berkshires. Do you have too many potential patients? I mean, it sounds too good to be true. Sounds to me like they ought to be lined up outside the door. Yeah, we've actually had a huge increase in patients over the past um, five years. We're seeing almost, you know, a 15 to 20% increase in patients. We expanded in 2016 seeing that need, and so our facilities are able to manage the growth that we're seeing. What about the idea of, you know, you got a president of the United States who may, has made it clear he doesn't much care for people who are immigrating into the United States. I would take it that some of your people have to be either Hispanic or Asian and have those issues which the United States is not standing for these days. Yeah, you're right. So about 80% of our patients are probably immigrants at this point, which is a change over the years since we started. And I think it is reflective of the increase of the immigrant population in Berkshire County, in you know the surrounding Connecticut and New York regions as well. We believe that everybody has the right to have health care and to have health care that's delivered in with high quality, that's equitable. And one of the most important things we can do in this area is provide a service for this population so that they can thrive, so that they can be members of our community, they can be healthy, they can work, their kids can be healthy, and we can start to deconstruct some of the systems that are in place that prevent that from happening in many other places in our country. Have you thought about what might happen if we got actually got universal health care? in this country? How would it affect you? Are you pre-planning for that? Yes, yeah, so I think there's two things. So, you know, 
Massachusetts has, you know, what we would call for some people universal health care since 2005. Everybody should have health care in, in Massachusetts. It's not exactly the same. What we found in 2005 was a question of whether or not we would need to exist anymore. And, you know, our goal and the best day would be if VIM actually needs to close. And if everyone got universal health care and our services weren't needed, our board is more than happy to say, we have a comp, you know, our vision's been achieved and, you know, thank you. It's unclear, even if we had universal health care, if the patients that we care for, so the immigrants that come in or the people that fall through the cracks so they don't have insurance maybe for three months or they're, you know, in between jobs and they've lost it, if that will ever go away. So what about the fact that some of these people may be undocumented and probably are undocumented? And, you know, we've got ICE hanging around and deporting people. Does that give you any problems? So we don't ask anybody about their documentation status when they come into them. We specifically don't ask. It's not important to us. We're not billing insurance. We're doing this because we believe people have the right to health care. We are aware of the threats to immigrant population, whether they're undocumented or documented, and what those um, what the issues of living in the Berkshires are for the immigrant population. And so we have policies and procedures in place to ensure that when they're within our building or, near, you know, or they need to come to an appointment, that we're helping to protect their rights. And then that we're also working very closely with other agencies in the Berkshires, Berkshire Immigrant Center, Bridge, Berkshire South, the schools, to make sure that those needs of this immigrant community, whether it's because ICE is around or because people feel unsafe, that you know, we're working together to start to solve these problems. Well, Ilana, let me ask you this. Suppose I showed up, knocked on your door as the executive director, um, and uh, asked you uh, to give them the names of people you suspect or you know are not, um, are not uh, bona fide citizens or potential citizens of the United States here legally. What would you do? Um, we do not take. We do not um, give out any patient information to anybody who would come to our door unless you came here with a warrant, and we had gotten that warrant looked at by our lawyer and had gone through the entire process. But no patient information, whether it's for documentation status or even if they're a patient here or not, would be given to anybody who walked to our door. Has it ever happened? No. Okay, so let's move on to the age of COVID. Obviously, COVID patients are, you know, the talk of medicine. How do you protect yourself? Have you had any? What would you do if somebody came in and said, I've tested positive? How would you handle it? So, you know, three and a half, three months in, it's, you know, I can give you some good answers um, and still say that, you know, how do we answer a lot that we don't even know the answer to? But, um, you know, from the moment COVID and things started to shut down, you know, we never shut down. So we take care of people who will always need um, services. And especially with the patient population that we take care of, with lack of technology, with lack of, you know, access to computers and Wi-Fi, telehealth, things that were put into place were good, but they weren't, it wasn't enough. So we early on, actually, we stopped having volunteers come into the um into the facility because many of them are over the age of 70 and the risk was just too high without knowing. We when, closed you say volunteers, you, when you say volunteers, you mean the doctors and nurses? The and doctors and yeah. even the people who sit at the front desk. And we sure. have a large driving program to, you know, a transportation program where volunteers drive patients to and from appointments. 
And so we converted mostly to um, telehealth for medical. We decreased our dental visits to, to just emergencies. And then we remained open for medical um, emergencies or things. Our goal was to prevent unneeded emergency room visits. And so our door got locked. We put on a doorbell and we got the appropriate PPE and we started doing what everyone else did, temperature checks, COVID screenings, checking people outside, bringing them in only if needed. As we understood how to protect ourselves better, it became easier to bring patients in and to know how to protect ourselves and the other staff. In terms of COVID, you know, the hospital set up a great system really early on in terms of getting patients screened and tested if needed. There was an obvious lack of testing in the beginning, and they were working very quickly to get more testing. The immigrant population, as we know, and a lot of the um, people who are underserved across the country were the patients that we were most concerned about because they were the ones who this was hitting the most. So if you think about, you know, our immigrant population, and not all, but some, they're living in houses that are more densely populated. So if you have one person in a house with multiple people and you need to self-isolate, it becomes a difficult thing. So we were able to identify people who were symptomatic. We were able to get them screened. And then we were also able to put into systems. So we worked very closely with Racebrook Lodge and Construct to set up alternative housing for people who tested positive or for family members who might need to be isolated. We were able to use the contact tracing and the local public health nurses to go into the homes and test so that they didn't, if they didn't have a car, they didn't have to go to the drive-through testing site. So we worked really aggressively to educate the patients on the importance of, of social distancing and isolating if possible. We worked closely with our patients who had to continue to work as frontline workers. And then as we heard of any symptom, we worked very aggressively to make sure that they were tested and that the symptoms were, that the number of cases was contained. Now, I've been staying away from the dentist myself, my own private dentist over at Albany, because I don't know how that's going to work. I got to open my mouth. He's got a mask on. I don't have a mask on. How do you protect yourself when the, where the dentistry is concerned? Yeah, so dentistry is actually the hardest, I think, program to restart for every, everyone who's looking at dentistry right now across the state, across the country, um, because we don't really know how, you know, we don't know all of the information there is with dentistry and what, you know, what the contagion rate is. The good news is we know what procedures within dental are higher risk. And so, so for all dentists, the, um, the amount of protective um, equipment that they use is extremely high. They're an N95 mask. They're changing them. They have gowns on. They have hair, hair coverings and goggles and masks. So the dentist themselves is very um, well covered. We know how to clean the room. Um, we know how, to, how much time between each patient. And then for the higher-risk um, procedures where you're actually aerosolizing particles, those are the ones that people are just not starting yet until we really understand. And if they do need to be done, which some do, there's different options. The first is you can test the patient for COVID, you know, just like they do for surgery. You can test a day or two before that procedure. You can make sure that, you know, the patient has no symptoms. You can test, you know, you can test them. Then you can ask all of the questions. And at this point, we're limiting those procedures. So we're doing things that don't require as much aerosolized particles, and we're working on stabilizing emergencies and doing things that are easier done. Let's talk about emergencies for a moment. You know, somebody has a ruptured appendix. Do they come to you? Do they call the hospital? How does it work? Both. <laughs> 
people come with the ruptured appendix and some people go straight to the hospital. So Massachusetts specifically has a really great program in place. It's a, it's a fund that was started many years ago. It used to be called Free Care, um, and it is to help cover emergencies for people who are uninsured so that the hospital doesn't have to take on all of the burden. And so if somebody is uninsured and they end up in the hospital, hopefully they, the hospital can then use some of this fund to help cover that cost. But oftentimes we'll have people who, you know, come to our office with acute abdominal pain and, you know, we can triage them quickly and we can get people in right away and we can assess what needs to be done. But suppose you don't have somebody who is accessible. Uh, in other words, some of this stuff gets pretty complicated neurologically in terms of heart disease. How do you decide, first of all, that you have the right person to help? And if you don't, what do you do? Yeah, so it's all about how, how we set up the systems and the network. So we've had patients from 30-year-old women who've had full-on open-heart surgery, men who've had heart surgery all the way in Boston, tumors removed at Mass General, eye surgery, you know, at Bay State, orthopedic surgery at Worcester, endocrine appointments in, you know, Pittsfield. And so we are really, you know, at this point, you know, we've been open 16 years we know exactly how to assess the needs of the patients, how to prioritize what needs to get done. And we believe that if someone needs something done, we are going to find a way to we are going to find a way to do it. So an example, we had a person who broke his wrist in the middle of COVID. Normally, we know that we have a relationship with an orthopedist out in Worcester who can um, who can get the surgery covered. But we didn't have access to that during COVID because we didn't have a way to transport the patient to Worcester. So a local orthopedic surgeon here agreed to take it on. We negotiated pricing. The hospital paid for some of it, then paid for some of it, and the surgeon paid, you know, took away some of his costs. And within, you know, three days, this arm was healed, and he's back to work already. Not unusual? healed, but he was able to have the surgery. But is that unusual that you have to pay? In other words, one of the things I always thought about VIM, Volunteers in Medicine, was that you had people who were willing to work for free. But I take it there are some people, sometimes, some situations where you can't find somebody to work for free. It is rare that we have to pay for, um, for large bills. So it might be a small, you know, an ultrasound or it might be an X-ray or it might be, you know, a diagnostic test. It's rare that we are not able to work with our our connections throughout the state. And so it's rare that we have to pay a large bill for anything having to do with medical care. Well, let me ask you this. The word of the of the week as we speak has been abortion. John Roberts voted, uh, you know, to keep the abortion program going in a particular state. The question for you is, do people come to you who need an abortion? People come to us for every all types of needs and all types of family planning. And if um, people need reproductive health and we cannot provide it here, we work very closely with Tapestry, with Berkshire Medical Center, and with Planned Parenthood. Can you go a little further? Please. So we can counsel people on, you know, people come and, you know, we can help support people with that, with whatever decision they make, especially in terms of their body. And so... There's programs that are set up, you know, Tapestry Health in Pittsfield and Berkshire Medical Center and Planned Parenthood in Albany and Planned Parenthood in Springfield. And so for patients who choose to have an abortion or who medically need it, we are able to help make a referral and help get those services set up for them. We're talking to Ilana Steinhauer, the executive director of Volunteers in Medicine Berkshires. Okay, so Ilana, I guess the question uh 
for you is how long can you stay with this? In other words, you're seeing a lot of people who are in great need. Does it ever depress you? This is the most uplifting, inspiring, energizing place. It is, um, you know, there is need, but there is a resilience that we see in the population that we care for that is inspiring. And what's interesting about it is we have these, we have volunteers who they've had their career, they've done it, you know, they thought they were done and they come in here and this is the best job they ever had. There is something about being able to connect human to human and to be able to look at somebody and really be here and do things because we are just trying to do good and just trying to help. And we're not trying to make a profit. We're trying to make sure we can sustain our, our organization, but we are here because we believe in what we do. And I feel lucky every day. And I think that the staff and that the volunteers feel just as lucky. And we're honored that we get to care for this population in the Berkshires. So obviously some people are salaried, you're salaried. Where's the money come from? Yeah, so um, we our budget's about $1.1 million. Um, it is all individual um, grants, foundations. We don't, um, at this point, um, those are the sources. Um, we have about 1,000 patients a year, and this year our budget was just about a million. So if you think about it, it's about $1,000 a patient per year, which is pretty much unheard of when you think of, you know, that's less than one emergency room visit. That's less than one premium payment. And so, um, you know, that's, yeah, we fundraise and we fundraise and hopefully we have people who believe as much as we do in the importance of equity and healthcare and ensuring that people in the Berkshires are able to live the life they want to be living. So we have an emergency room, a wonderful emergency room at Fairview Hospital. I've been there a few times. My question to you is, do you have the equivalent of an emergency room? Now, obviously, uh, somebody could go to the emergency room, and as you've pointed out before, you know, there's obligation to treat them. But what if they wake up in the middle of the night with a sharp pain? Is there a way that they can be in touch with you? Yeah, so... We do not have an on-call system. We just don't, it's not part of um, what's been set up here, mostly because we are a volunteer-based system. So the emergency room is the place that our patients go if they wake up in the middle of the night. What's interesting, though, is that many of the emergency room visits that happen, and you can talk to anyone there, are avoidable visits, whether it's dental pain or back pain or, you know, stomach pain. And so our patients, part of what we do here is we're really big on educating. What is the use of the emergency room? When do you use it and when don't you use it? And so our patients know to call us during the day, to call, you know, to leave us messages. And also we're extremely, it's extremely important for preventative care. So, you know, we want to make sure that people don't end up in the hospital with uncontrolled diabetes or a heart attack. And so our emergency room rates are actually pretty low. Um, during the day, if someone cuts their finger or, you know, things that can be done in the emergency room, we do have access to that here if there are patients. Um, but, yes, we use the emergency room for emergencies, and we do have patients who go there sometimes in the middle of the night. So is there an increasing, in your opinion, vulnerability of our population? We've already talked a little bit about, you know, the COVID, but are people getting sicker? In general, in the Berkshires or um, yes, with yes. our... Yes, no, I want to just talk yeah. to you about your population, yeah. 
So we do not see that our patient is getting our patient population is getting sicker. We're seeing more patients, so that means we're seeing you know more visits. But um, we really believe in terms of the model of how do you preventative care, chronic disease management, and looking at it so that you're not just looking at a medicine and you're not just looking at um, you know checking a blood pressure, giving a med, but what, is it, what does it mean to really prevent people from getting sicker? And that's where the other programming comes in as well. So nutrition or mindfulness, acupuncture for pain, but also housing and making sure that the kids are in school and that, um, you know, during COVID, it's a great, you know, it's a really good example. So all of the care model went out the door. You know, we weren't able to be with the, with the patients. We weren't able to, you know, examine them the way we did. Telehealth was a way to connect. We could talk to them. But we also realized during COVID, our main priority was, you know, prevent emergency room visits, prevent people from, you know, getting sicker with COVID. But also, what does it mean to be healthy? It means that you're able to pay your bills. You're able to feed your family. And so we were able to pivot. We were able to use our staff to help make sure people had food, to work with the food pantry, to send a staff member to speak Spanish at the food pantry, to work with Berkshire, Berkshire South or Construct. And health kind of gets designed differently. And you'll see that if you start to look at all of these other aspects of someone's health care or someone's health, only 20% is clinical. 80% is what's surrounding them. What does their lived environment look like? What is the socioeconomic status? What is their safety? And so we are able to, I think, prevent people from getting sicker because we don't get stuck on the clinical. We look at all of these other aspects and how can we work to make sure those other things are in place. Now, Elena Steinhauer, I wanted to go there because I do know that there are times when you need cooperation with the police, for example, or you need somebody uh, special to, who who understands that there's a, some abuse going on in a home of one kind or another, domestic abuse. Do you have social workers who work with you to, to handle that stuff? Yeah, so, I mean, we have a full behavioral health team and then our other staff. We also have what we call a community health worker. Community health workers are people who are usually from the community in which they're working, and their job is to be that connector, to be that person who is able to form relationships outside of the office to make sure that people have access and are able to get the services they need. We work extremely closely with the Elizabeth Freeman Center, with, you know, other agencies in the area that when we're lucky when we have patients that are able to open up to us here, when we have the trust that we've built and they come to us, we're able to pick up that phone. We're able to call those, um, you know, Elizabeth Freeman or if needed, the police, and we're able to approach each situation the way it needs to be approached to ensure safety. Do you find that your patients can afford to be open with you about this stuff? We feel extremely lucky. We believe most of our patients are open with us about this, and they're able to see action when they are open. We're able to understand their needs, their safety, and and kind of walk the walk with them. So I want to return to the police function. Obviously, there's a certain amount of information that doctors don't want to share with police, and then there's sometimes you have to. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the truth is we have very little interaction with the police. That's, you know, we we at VIM, you know, that's not the, our patient population generally is here because they want to be living here and they want to be living 
um, peacefully in the Berkshires. And so our interaction with the police is pretty minimal. One of the keys we do have is that we want our patients, we want everybody to have a relationship that's trusting between so that when they, there is an issue, they feel safe to call the police. We know all the work that Bridge did in terms of um, making Great Barrington, you know, making Great Barrington safe and um, that there is no interaction with police and with um, ICE, for instance. Um, we know that's not the case all over the Berkshires, but our we sit on boards with the police. The police know that, um, you know, we are really focused on um, non-opioid pain management. So we actually specifically work on the Southern Berkshire Opioid Task Force. We find opportunities where our where our patients and police are interacting, and we try to make sure that there's a trust there. But in general, our interaction is very low. So, Elana, what are your board members supposed to do for you? Obviously, they, some can give money. Are there other functions? Yeah, so we have some board members who are doctors, some who are dentists, some who are nutritionists or communications. So we have um, our boards always, you know, just like any board, well, not any board, but most boards in the Berkshires, it's a volunteer board. And we have some that are very involved in the clinical, you know, direct service that we do here and some that are focused on the supporting of um, development. But all our board is responsible for some of our development and some are more engaged in the day-to-day process. And how do people get on your board? Did members of the board nominate somebody else or how does that work? Yeah, so we have a nominating committee that includes people that aren't from our board, that are community members from people who work for Berkshire Taconic or other agencies, and they suggest people. And normally, um, people who want to join our board are asked to get involved in a committee. We get to know them, and we make sure it's a good fit. They get nominated and then come on to our board. What would a bad fit be? You want to make sure it's a good fit. My twin brother, Lewis, who is a great not-for-profit person, I used to say there's some people get on boards for the wrong reasons. They want to fight. How do you weed those people out? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're not an arts organization like Jacob's Pillow or Tanglewood. We don't offer a direct service to anyone who, you know, joins our board. They don't get a better parking spot or they don't get, you know, they don't have we don't have that same appeal. And so for us, it's about are you invested in the mission? Are you invested in this being one of one or hopefully your top priority? And do you have the same values as us? Um, Do you believe in equity? Do you believe, um, are you ready to do the work and walk the walk? And what does that look like? Okay, so let's go back to conditions in the Berkshires right now. Tanglewood is closed for a while. The theater festivals are suffering. An awful lot of not-for-profits are in real trouble. Are you feeling that at Vim? Yeah, so our priority, um, our focus over the past three months has been a balance. So what is the need of the patient population and what is the need of our economics? You know, just like any other aid organization, the summer is our big season. We're not having our gala. We didn't have our dinner event. We can't have, you know, the ways in which we normally engage our donors. We don't have it. Um, and so we're, we're looking at what does that look like? How do we engage people? How do we help people understand the importance of our mission and what we're doing now more than ever? Um, in terms of the Berkshires, in terms of, um, you know, who's here, donors, there's a lot of people in the Berkshires right now. There's, we're seeing a lot of younger people who are here who aren't normally here. Maybe, they, you know, they're not the people who normally go to Tanglewood every day. They're people who are coming to the Berkshires who are in their 30s or 40s who have their families here. And I think it's an um, interesting group of people to get engaged right now. But for our patients, 
you know, this is a huge, this was a huge deal to COVID, not just the medical part of it, but the economic impact, especially on the immigrant community, cannot be understated. This was a population who did not, a lot of, not all, but a lot of them did not receive government assistance. They didn't qualify for unemployment. They didn't qualify for stimulus checks. They also are a vital, vital population in the Berkshires. It's our job to ensure that they want to live here, that they feel cared for, that they love being here, because they are a lot of what supports the industry of the Berkshires. And so we pivoted a bit. You know, we always dealt with social determinants of health. We always dealt with housing. We always paid a bill that needed to be paid. But in the past, um, since COVID started, we've actually been working very closely with private donors and from all the way from Boston and Berkshire Taconic and have been able to give out over $100,000 in assistance for bills for our patients, along plus the construct um, housing assistance and working to ensure that people are stable through this time. You know, you mentioned housing a number of times. I want to talk to you about that. Obviously, going hand in hand with this sense of health is where you live. And Berkshire County, particularly Southern Berkshires, have been criticized for not having enough places for people to live. Are you finding that? There are not enough places to live and there are not enough affordable places to live. And so, yes, I think it's a huge thing that needs to be focused on. Um, and, you know, we need to make sure landlords are happy and landlords can, you know, pay their mortgage. But we need to make sure that we increase the amount of housing available for people who are working. Well, is it beginning to happen? Are we seeing more housing? Yes. We are not seeing more housing, you know, especially now um, with, you know, Airbnb and people who can make more money in a summer than renting their houses for the whole year. We're not seeing an increase in rental properties at this time. Well, I have a feeling some of that's going to change Yeah, based on COVID. The Airbnb people aren't going to be attracting a lot of people this summer, I suspect. Anyway, what is the thing that keeps you up at night worrying about your job as director of VIM in the Berkshires? Um, is there something that makes you worry? You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that makes me worried. I mean, for us, you know, because of how important and how vital this agency is, you know, the economics and ensuring that we're going to bring in the funding, although we do it every year, is always a worry. The thing but this that, is different. This is different this year, right? I mean, you know, we're not in the same circumstances that we have been in the past. A lot of right. people come up here for Tanglewood. They're not going to be coming this year. Yeah, I mean, this has to do with what is the value of the Berkshires for people who live here full time and for people who, you know, are only here. And I think um, for the business owners to have a healthy workforce, for the community to, you know, start to look at what are the systems that we have that can be supportive of the vulnerable populations and to lift those systems up and to focus on how do we support those systems? How do we support them? How do we support Construct? How do we support Berkshire South? What does it look like to have a community where the social service agencies are our primary, um, you know, are the responsibility of everybody and that everybody feels engaged with? So, you know, I'm always looking at that. The thing that keeps me up at night, really, it's not a worry. It's more of a vision and a frustration and a everything at once is I believe that the Berkshires has the power to do things um, better than anyone else in Massachusetts. And, um, you know, we have the ability to create systems in which you walk into 
a church or a school or them or another medical facility and you have needs and there's a system in place that connects all of what we what resources we have whether it's you know someone who walks in and their kid needs to be signed up for school and they walk into you know them that we have systems in place that can quickly get them signed up or you walk into Berkshire South and you need food and Berkshire South can connect you with that and then you and then that same person walks into another agency and they can see oh, this is stuff that you've needed. How are you doing? What else can we do for you? I I think COVID highlights it, but the need for system-wide collaboration to identify gaps and to decrease duplication, especially with all the nonprofits, is vital. I guess the issue for so many of us is how you attract people who are haves to support have-nots. Now, part of it is that you got to want to, but in addition to the wanting to is to support it, you got to know about it. So I'm glad you're on this show today. There'll be people who will say, oh, boy, I didn't know about this and get involved. But is it an outreach function that you have that works? Our best outreach is people who know about us, who talk about us. You know, we've looked at it all. So whether you put an ad up at the Mahewi or you put an ad in the newspaper or you go and you, you know, do a ad on, you know, WSBS or AMC, and, you know, there's all these different outreach and communication techniques we've tried, and, you know, we will always continue to try. Our biggest way to get people to know them are things like this, where we're able to talk about it for our volunteers talking to their friends, our patients talking to their friends to get the patients who need it, um, different agencies working with us and us working with them, and they talk about us when they are at a meeting with other agencies, and, you know, from even, you know, Jacob's Pillow is a great example in Mahewi. You know, we've been working very close and Berkshire Pulse very closely of what does it look like to integrate the benefits of the art into health? What does that do for a patient? You know, what does that do for a staff? And then for them to then talk about them and to just have it spread like that. To what degree is hunger a function in health? If people don't have access to healthy food or they don't have access to food in general, how do you focus on anything else? How do you tell somebody who doesn't have access to healthy food that they need to find, they need to watch their sugar when all they get access to is, you know, canned, cheap, high, you know, or sugary foods? And so primarily, you know, we have to we are always ensuring that patients have access to not just food, but that the food is of quality, that the food is also going to help them become healthy. Diabetes is on the rise. Do you find that in your practice? So with new patients, we see people who come with diabetes. The Latino population does have a um, higher rate of diabetes than um, some of the other populations. What we find, though, is a huge rate of motivation and a huge rate of the ability to decrease someone's sugar very, very quickly with just a few lifestyle modifications. Like what? And you know, the first and the foremost is the simple stuff, the cutting out sugar, like sugary drinks, the not drinking soda, the not drinking, um, you know, energy drinks, alcohol, beer, you know, cutting down on beer, cutting out beer. Those are the first things. But depending on the population that we're talking with, depending on what their diet consists of, if their diet consists of a lot of rice or a lot of tortillas, you know, what does it look like? What are some alternatives? If it's pasta, if it's pizza, what are, the, what are the things surrounding how they eat? Do they work at a restaurant and that's where they eat three meals a day? What are alternatives that they can be doing if they give them a staff meal of spaghetti and meatballs? 
How do we help them make changes that fit their lifestyle rather than just telling everybody to do the same thing? Okay, I'll bite. How do you make changes when they're eating three meals a day from the restaurant, spaghetti and meatballs? Yeah, so... You know, th- those are the hardest, right? Because you get free meals. Sure. The first thing, the first thing we do is we talk about: is there a way to? A lot of times they're the cooks, you know, where they're in the kitchen. Is there a way to yeah. add a salad in there? And instead of having the spaghetti and meatballs, to have a salad and then to put a meatball on the salad instead. Um, a lot of times we end up, you know, working with patients to get access to food so that they can bring it themselves if it's really um, hard for them to eat at work. Um, and then you balance it all with lifestyle, with exercise. What is it, you know, how do you get your body moving? What does that look like for you and the culture that you're from? Do you exercise? Yes. <laughs> what do you do? I am a runner and I am a member of what was formerly known as CrossFit Great Barrington, soon to be named something else. <laughs> because they had a bad boy who was the head of the whole thing. That's so, right. Yeah. And the exercise piece is interesting. I mean, we we have a very close relationship with Berkshire South where we're able to write a prescription, literally a prescription for our patients to go to Berkshire South at a reduced rate. And then we also have a very close relationship with um, what was formerly known as CrossFit. And we do, during the winter months, we have groups of our patients that work out together three times a week. And the power of creating community and the power of of that is the motivation we find to taking care of the body as well. And now, with the door being locked and people not being able to come in, has that made a big difference in outcomes, health outcomes? You know, no one's going to know what the outcomes are. I mean, people love telehealth for certain things. It's great to be able, you know, this morning I saw patients before we, you know, before we spoke and I had one guy who was on a construction site and he was able to make his appointment and we were able to talk and check in. You know, there's a convenience to that that's really that's really special, really convenient. You know, it's it's good. You know, you I think, you know, you can connect easier. There is something about not being with a patient, not having the face-to-face ability to connect that I think decreases, um, that I think we will see in outcomes over the next few months or years. And so our priority is at this point, especially knowing that the numbers are down and knowing how to be safe, we have to prioritize chronic chronic disease management, things that are going to get worse, we do need to be seeing them in the office. It doesn't need to be as often, but we still need to be seeing them. We need to be you know, face-to-face and ensuring that they can maintain health. Now, you know, I'm always worried about getting this thing. I wear a mask. I walk. I shop as little as I can. How about you? Yeah, I mean, we're all worried. You know, I'm worried for me. I'm more worried for my staff because I that's my responsibility, and I'm worried for the volunteers that are now coming in, you know, who are 70 or, you know, years old or 75. The good news is we have learned a lot about this over the past few months. We've learned a lot about how to protect ourselves. Um, we've been super lucky, and if you talk to most of the um, care providers in the Berkshires, there's been a really low rate, even though we remained open of COVID among healthcare providers in the community, which means that we know the actions we're taking, the masks and the goggles or the face shields and the gowns and the washing the hands and the patients having masks on, that they're really protective. And we have to go slow. We have to um, make sure we're constantly, you know, reexamining our practices, but, you know, we're problem solving every day. What does it look like? How do we execute it? How do we go back and fix it? What, you know, and 
and just watch the trends. And we have to be ready to go back to what we were like three months ago um, if needed. And so it's a learning, it's a learning curve for everybody, but um, we feel pretty confident in the procedures we've put forward. I want to remind everybody we've been talking to Ilana Steinhauer, the Executive Director of Volunteers in Medicine of the Berkshires. So what's the future going to look like? We already talked about the fact that if we have, you know, let's just say Joe Biden gets elected president and we adopt a national health care policy that includes everybody. And, you know, we've talked about the fact that you guys are willing to go out of business if you need to, if that happens. But when you look to the future of your group, which I remember when, you know, it's one or two people were doing the whole thing. And now you've got this phenomenal organization with so much happening. Does it look like it's going to get even bigger? We are still growing. And I think the real strategic question is, how do we grow and what does that look like? And so... Um, you know, that's the strategic question we're, you know, looking at, you know, we're just about to start our new strategic planning. It's now COVID, so that changes everything. But, you know, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. So if there was universal health care and health care, and we really didn't need the clinical services, what's the advantage of this community health worker model? What's the advantage of having a place where you are able to connect, you know, human to human, and you're able to be that place where, you know, we have people who come to the Berkshires and a day later they show up in the in our office and they're here because their kids need to go to school and they don't know how to get them signed up. And so within what a process that used to sometimes take a month, we can actually get that child enrolled in school to the pediatrician for a physical, get the bus to come to their house to pick them up, get them signed up for, you know, food. And we can get that done now in less than a week, which is a huge thing. So what does that look like? How do we expand that way? How do we work with other agencies to start to um, create systems like that? And then the other option, the other discussion is always, you know, obviously if there's universal health care, it's different, but how do we expand our clinical reach? You know, is there a need somewhere else that we're not meeting? Is there a new growing population in a different part of the county or, you know, in New York, surrounding New York or Connecticut where our services could be used, whether it's just our behavioral health or just our medical or just our acupuncture? Or, you know, what does that look like? So, you know, here we are, and we're talking about this incredible organization that you run. You're the executive director, Volunteers in Medicine, and we're talking about all the incredible volunteers who have, you know, signed up and given their all to make it happen. And I'm wondering about the children who you've just been talking about. Every patient, obviously, uh, who comes in has connections. They have family connections. They have brothers, sisters, children. And we have a children's health program, a wonderful children's health program in Great Barrington. But do all of those organizations get together and see how they can complement each other? That's the goal. You know, I think that that transition has been happening more and more. So we sit at the table together more and more. You know, we have the Rural Health Network now in South in Southern Berkshire County where CHP community health programs and Fairview and VIM and, you know, the town and different agencies come together to sit at the table to accomplish just that. And I think the key is, you know, being at the table with your mission, knowing what your mission is, taking away some of the ego and really coming to it, coming at it together so that the goal is the person that you are caring for, not the agency itself. Now, the big problem in this coronavirus time is nursing homes. Is there any connection between volunteers in medicine and nursing homes? Almost no connection. That's the truth. So most people who are 65 and over get Medicare. 
So um, the only patients that we care for that are over that age are patients who don't qualify for Medicare and then our dental population. So um, we, will, we will sometimes have um, patients who are in a rehab who need dental procedures done right now. Obviously, that's not happening um, because of the strict quarantining of um, nursing homes. But in general, we have very little interaction with the nursing home community. And one last question i got to ask you is, what kind of government funding is available to you? You mentioned Medicare. What about Medicaid? What about aid for those people who have so little? We don't get any of that money because our patients aren't on Medicaid, and Medicare doesn't cover dental. So we do not bill any insurance companies. We don't, none of our patients, if they're coming here for services, it's because another agency can't bill for the service. You know, that's important for our mission, but also important for other agencies that do provide services and making sure that they can bill for services that they can provide. And so we don't get any money from any insurance companies such as Medicaid or Medicare. Well, let me just say, you're terrific. We've been talking with Alana Steinhauer, the executive director of the Volunteers in Medicine Berkshires. Volunteers in Medicine is a wonderful organization. And, uh, you know, as much as possible, people ought to support it because it really does the job. So, Alana, thank you so much for being with us, and good luck on your incredible job that you're doing, and you've got to keep on doing it. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. 